of the confluence of historical factors that led to the major working class revolt that was the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike? Why would societies achieving social reforms within capitalist economies be vulnerable to the allure of the xenophobic right? Are there successful bonds of solidarity we can forge beyond the union to secure social gains? What are the failures of traditional organizing and what are the underutilized resources that could result in success in today's struggles against poverty and social injustice? On this week's Global Research News Hour radio program, on a week marking the 100th anniversary of the start of Canada's largest open-ended general strike, we take a look at labor activism since that century-old event and attempt to determine how those struggles can inform the daunting challenges of 2019. In our first half hour, we get an overview from academic and author Leo Panich. Then, in our second half hour, we convene a roundtable discussion with three guests, scholar and author Julie Gard, anti-poverty advocate Harold Dick, and Ontario-based organizer John Clark. On this week's program, 1919 Winnipeg General Strike, Lessons for Creating a Better World in 2019. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 17th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabeg Akin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. As the New Yorker's Robin Wright wrote Monday, the United States, quote, has a long history of provoking, instigating, or launching wars based on dubious, flimsy, or manufactured threats, unquote, including Iraq, Libya, Vietnam, and elsewhere. Today, the question in Washington, and surely in Tehran too, is whether President Trump is making moves that will provoke, instigate, or inadvertently drag the United States into a war with Iran, Wright wrote. The problem, as U.S. history proves, is that the momentum of confrontation is harder to reverse with each escalatory step. Speaking to reporters on Monday, Trump said he's, quote, hearing little stories about Iran, unquote, apparently referring to U.S. intelligence officials' unsubstantiated claim that Iran was behind the alleged tanker attacks. Iran has denied any involvement. That comes from the article, Warnings of Gulf of Tonkin 2.0 as Trump officials blame Iran for oil tanker attacks by Jake Johnson, posted May 15th, originally published at Common Dreams. John Bolton ordered the Pentagon to come up with an updated plan for getting more American troops into the Middle East to fight a war against Iran. The plans are in now, according to officials, who say that the options envision 120,000 U.S. ground troops in the Middle East. Incredibly, this option appears to just be the start of the war, as officials say that the 120,000 plan does not include a U.S. ground invasion of Iran. 
officials concede that the ground invasion would require far more troops. Instead, the 120,000 is just the next step in the ongoing U.S. escalations toward war and is envisioned as a response to any Iranian threat on U.S. forces or interests or any hint of acceleration of its nuclear program. That comes from the article, White House Reviews U.S. Military Plan for 120,000 Troops for Iran War, by Jason Ditz, posted May 15th, originally published at antiwar.com. At Bolton's instigation, an aircraft carrier and B-52 bombers are being deployed to the Persian Gulf on the supposedly clear grounds that Iran and its proxies are readying themselves for a strike on U.S. forces in the region, bringing to mind similar provocations sought to stoke a potential conflict. The planning of Operation Prairie Fire was one such ignominious example designed to provoke Muammar Gaddafi's Libya into a military incident in 1986. In what seemed to be a true over-egging of the pudding, U.S. Navy Task Force 60 involved three aircraft carriers operating in the Mediterranean off the Libyan coast. They were involved in exercises falling within that most stretched of terms, freedom of navigation. Prairie Fire turned out to be a bellicose affair, with Task Force 60 put on essentially a wartime footing. That comes from the article, Maximum Pressure in the Strait of Hormuz, the U.S.-Iran Standoff, by Dr. Pinoy Kampmark, posted May 14th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. It was on May 15, 1919, that workers from various trades walked off the job, leaving the city of Winnipeg in turmoil, shutting down much of the city. 30,000 workers, including 12,000 non-unionized laborers, walked off the job for six weeks, making this the biggest general strike in Canadian history. Local business elites, backed by government officials, secured the suppression of the strike, finally crushing it during the June 21st event known as Bloody Saturday. To gain some insights into the background of the strike, its importance nationally and internationally, and its relation to the challenges facing workers and vulnerable community members today, the Global Research News Hour sought out Leo Panich. Professor Panich is Canada Research Chair in Comparative Political Economy at York University, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at York University, co-editor with Sam Gindon of the Socialist Register, and author of several books, including the 2012 volume The Making of Global Capitalism, The Political Economy of American Empire, co-authored by Sam Gindon. He joined us in the CKUW studio while attending a conference dedicated to the anniversary of the Winnipeg General Strike. Welcome, Leo Panich, to uh, our show. Thanks, Michael. I'm very glad to be here. So let's start with the uh, the 1919 general strike. Could you please place that uh, dynamic event within an international context? What was its significance in terms of what was going on uh, in, in those years and you know, internationally? Well, in, in the uh, years after the First World War, uh, there was an explosion of uh, working class revolt. 
and the Winnipeg General Strike uh, stands out as one of the great events in that explosion. Uh, 1919 itself was, uh, across the world, a year in which uh, four decades of working-class formation around the uh, European and North American continents uh, and to some extent uh, uh, visible as well in the South American continent, uh, came together and reached a climax. Uh, since the 1880s, uh, working classes had begun to produce a remarkable set of institutions which were unique in history. They were permanent organizations of the subordinate class, there had always been slave revolts. There had always been bread riots, usually led by women. But to be able to develop permanent organizations of the subordinate class was a remarkable thing. And it wasn't only unions, it was also political parties. And it was mass political parties. Um, they were created from below uh, and they uh, were permitted by virtue of the way in which capitalism evolved a limited democracy with workers struggling to be seen as part of the state to get citizenship in the sense of being able to vote. And it was, of course, restricted at first to those working men who owned some property, who were householders, or at least who were renters. Uh, it then go, only got extended to most of working class men during World War I. Uh, working class women only in very select places secured the right to vote before uh, the uh, First World War. Uh, but that struggle, both for workers' rights to organize politically and industrially, but also to be brought into the state as citizens with full rights, was uh, culminated in a remarkable uh, revolt after World War I, uh, where working people generally asserted that what we've realized is that within the framework of capitalism, we aren't really going to be able to have these rights in any full way. Uh, and, and we will often be cannon fodder for uh, capitalist states who were engaged in war of expansion with one another. And it was the frustration with how little they'd achieved through four decades of organizing, together with... Uh, how they had become cannon fodder during the war, although many of them were mobilized to fight behind their states, of course. Uh, the disappointments that came with that came to a head with the fall in real wages due, due, due to the inflation in prices towards the end of the war. That led to this revolt. Mm. And it came out in various ways. In 1917, you got a revolution in Russia, of course. Uh, which was an insurrectionary revolution. Uh, in 1918, you got the British Labour Party committing itself to coming to office through elections, but saying, when we do, we will bring the means of production, distribution, exchange into common ownership, dedicating themselves, therefore, to the claim that securing our rights and our basic needs will not be done within this framework of capitalism. So what came together, and the Winnipeg General Strike really epitomized it, this six weeks long strike uh, 
What came together was a sense of we have basic needs that need to be met. They are needs that have to do with human rights. They are needs that have to do with food security, housing security, etc. Uh, uh, and and we feel that those won't be met within this system. Hmm. And those two things were articulated together at the same time. Do you have uh, an antecedent in uh, a previous period of uh, what could be called an explosion of uh, of working class? Uh, uh, discontent. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of 1848, which would have been in living memory. Yes. Uh, albeit barely. Barely. Yes. It, it, in fact, it goes, uh, it, at least in the uh, Anglo world, back to the Chartists of the 1830s. Uh, and there were parallels to those developments in Germany and, and France, etc. But it, it, that culminates in the 1848 revolts. Uh, the year of revolution of 1848. Then there's, that's defeated for the most part. Uh, and, and there's a long hiatus until the 1880s. And it's only in the 1880s that you get, begin to get the development of these mass working class organizations. There are unions formed in the interim years, but between the 1830s and 1840s and the 1880s, uh, with the great strikes in the United States, the Haymarket strike, etc., the dock worker strike in Britain in 1889, the the match worker strike, the match girl strike in London uh, at mm-hmm. the end of the 1880s, uh, and then the formation of what became known as the great socialist parties of, of the Second International, um, of which there were also elements in North America. Uh, uh, May Day is named after those socialist parties in Europe uh, expressing loyalty to the workers who had been assaulted during the Haymarket events mm-hmm. in Chicago in, in 1886. Um, so uh, there's an explosion in the mid-80s as well. And 1886 is often uh, compared with 1919 as the most proximate previous year. And there indeed, there would have been people who remembered Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Winnipeg case, you got this potpourri of people, some of whom have come up from the States, most of whom had come from Europe, uh, uh, who uh, brought with them knowledge, familiarity with these modes of organizing and, and revolt. Uh, I told a story uh, at the conference yesterday at the roundtable we had of the Brownstone family. Meyer Brownstone, who I know very well, became president of Oxfam Canada, had worked as a civil servant uh, in the first socialist government in North America, the CCF government in Saskatchewan, elected in 44, etc. Uh, he uh, came from Odessa, his family did. He, he was born in Winnipeg, but his family came from Odessa. That's where Trotsky was born. And they shared the same name. Trotsky's uh, real name was Bronstein. Uh, and, and it came out at Meyer Brownstone's funeral a month ago that his mother, as a seven-year-old, had carried messages for the revolutionary underground in Odessa before the 1905 revolution uh, uh, in, in, in Russia. So there was a direct link uh, between some of the people who participated uh, in the strike uh, and revolutionary working class developments in Europe. Uh, 
Um, and, you know, the same would have been true, of course, of struggles that people in Scotland or Ireland uh, or England had engaged in, uh, or Germany, for that matter, uh, who had ended up in Winnipeg uh, in the great boom uh, that Winnipeg went through in the first decades of the 20th century. If... Uh our review of these years is uh, essentially a, a history of, of class warfare. I mean, there's also the, the other side, the, the business class, the capitalist class. And so while, you know, people who came to this conference are, are for the most part looking at uh, some of their own history of, of fighting for, for labor rights, the, the people on the other side are, are learning their own lessons. They're reviewing what's happened in the 1840s and the 1880s and the right. 1919 and since. So and, and are frightened by it. Yeah. So And some of them, as came out yesterday as well, was very interesting. Um, uh, uh, Owen Taves uh, pointed this out in a remarkable panel on the marginalization of Indigenous people uh, in our recounting of this history. And he pointed out that a good number of the bosses of Winnipeg, and Winnipeg had the most millionaires in North America in 1911, uh, that many of those bosses who formed the Committee of 1000 that took over the running of the city in the face of the strike, that some of them directly and certainly some of their fathers had come to Western Canada in order to put down the Riel Rebellion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that was a direct link. Uh, and and that's very important to recognize, I think. Uh, I, I think that their claim that there was a revolution afoot, uh, which, of course, it had to do with the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, but they also would have been frightened by the Labour Party in Britain adopting a commitment to socialism in its Clause 4 of its new constitution. Uh, you know, it was, it's often said this was a calumny, this wasn't true, all the workers wanted were decent wages, the right to organize, etc. I think they were right to be frightened because the demands that were being formulated often were being formulated in anti-capitalist terms. Uh, there were socialist organizations, there was a socialist culture, there was a socialist awareness, uh, and, and people were speaking in anti-capitalist and socialist terms. So it, it, I think the, you know, the people who try to say, oh, you know, we really weren't all that radical, it, it was very difficult in that moment to separate the demands for basic needs and basic rights from a demand that we need a different system. And this is the relevance of the strike today. What we have discovered in the last 40 years of neoliberalism is that the reforms that were secured in the middle of the century, partly because of the kinds of struggles that yielded a shift in the balance of forces in the middle of the 20th century, the reforms that were secured around trade union rights, around welfare rights, uh, around education rights, etc. Uh, and people thought that those were permanent, that you know, they'd never be taken away. On the contrary, what we're discovering with the globalization of capitalism, with the increase in competitiveness around the world, is that those reforms are being lost. And the question that's increasingly posed in the 21st century uh, 
is uh, whether in order even to hold on this, to those reforms, let alone go further, one doesn't in fact need to get beyond capitalism. Whether we don't have to put on the agenda again, taking the decisions about what's invested, where it's invested, the decisions about how our work is run, right, into the common public sphere. Uh, and that was avoided by the reformist period well, of the post-war welfare state area. Yeah, well, era. I mean, one, one, one could also argue, of course, that uh, that, that reformist drive ended up you know splitting the uh, the, the the working, working class, class because you, you you couldn't achieve uh, the, the the full transformation to uh, you know to a post capitalist realm and and so one could argue that that reformist tranche is essentially a pressure relief valve that keeps the capitalist in power and control with making okay we made some concessions but good now we're safe yeah I think that's right. Uh, those reforms were real. They made a, a significant impact on people's lives, and they reflected. It wasn't just a matter of some smart, progressive university professors coming along and advising governments to introduce this policy and that policy. They reflected a uh, shift in power, uh, uh, where all of that working-class organizing that had got on and the revolts that had been expressed did have an impact on the balance of forces in society, but not so much as to be able to uh, 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 transform the system. Uh, but people naively, and this was not only true of the CCF, the NDP, the Labour Party, the Social Democratic Parties in Europe, the New Dealers and the Democratic Party, it was also true of the Communist Parties, who uh, by the 1950s and 60s came to the conclusion uh, that, uh, you know, essentially Sweden was the best we could get. Uh, Gorbachev was trying to create Sweden in Russia uh, before uh, the Soviet system was overthrown. Um, what we've discovered is that Sweden is no longer Sweden. Uh, that as Swedish capital started say Electrolux, started not reinvesting their profits in Sweden, but buying up the Italian electrical goods industry, the pressures of globalization began to undermine the even great Swedish welfare state. Uh, there was a tax revolt on the part of uh, business people and the professional middle classes in Sweden. The first great financial crisis was in Sweden as a result of the deregulation of finance in Sweden. Mm -hmm. uh, people still today point to Sweden as, well, we can have a stable welfare state within capitalism, but they aren't watching what's going on there. And in Sweden, there has been a rise of the neo-fascist right, yeah, the xenophobic absolutely. right as well, as the social democrats uh, have not been able to go beyond the reforms that were, of course, the most extensive reforms and that have always been the model for social democrats everywhere. That, what, that's what brings us home, that what is now fearful to me about the 21st century mm -hmm. is that by being unable to go beyond the mobilization of working people behind reforms within capitalism, being unable to sustain the kind of socialist political understanding and education, which had gone on in Winnipeg in up to 1919, uh, 
uh, as unions became less and less schools for socialism, if you like, <laughs> as the parties became less and less oriented to developing people's capacities, political capacities, people are increasingly open to the xenophobic right, which divides people, uh, which divides working people uh, between uh, more recent uh, entrance into labor, the labor market than people who have more seniority in it, whether that's expressed in racial terms or it's expressed in refugee terms or it's expressed in generational terms. Uh, and, and the danger is uh, that people become open, as indeed happened in the 1930s, uh, to the appeal of xenophobia and race as against the appeal of class. One critical difference between those, those years of institution building that led up to 1919 and today, and that's that there's been so much of these bonds that, uh, that have been colonized. Uh, we've, like Facebook, a private corporation, has been our major means of inter, uh, interaction. Uh, so much myth-making by the Hollywood and the, you know, the American dream, you can start from nothing and become, mm -hmm. you know. What are your thoughts about the capacity given, well, even automation, all of these things, that we have that capacity to build those institutions? You're absolutely right to point to those things, and there's no sense in being in any sense uh, unmindful of the mountains one needs to climb, uh, the ways in which all of what you're describing has disorganized, deformed uh, w the working classes uh, and how hard it will be to have a new type of class formation that would make a transformation possible. You're absolutely right. Uh, that said, life isn't worth living unless one keeps on trying. And there are evidences uh, that we can point to of people doing it. Uh, not nearly enough to be able to see it through, uh, but it, it's around us. Uh, and, you know, you see it in the type of communications that this radio station does. We don't only have Facebook, and we find ways to use Facebook uh, that, are, that contribute to what we're talking about. A great example of this is that Corbyn didn't come out of nowhere in the Labour Party. A group of uh, highly capable young people who had tremendous social media skills formed something called Red Labour in 2011 and began to develop uh, social media networks amongst Labour Party members, young people who were involved also in protest constantly against the austerity regime of the Conservatives and so on, uh, which became the basis of Corbyn's election as leader of the Labour Party. And then uh, when Corbyn did so well in the uh, 2016 election, uh, against May, taking Labour's vote to over 40%, the largest increase in Labour's vote since 1945. Uh, the people who had formed Red Labour were crucial to those who now were in this group called Momentum. And they put out a, I'll just end with this, uh, a video during the election campaign, which was one of the most brilliant I've ever seen. And it was seen by one-third of Facebook uh, uh, people, people on Facebook in Britain. That video uh, showed uh, three workers 
one of them is a fireman who comes out of a burning house covered in suit, looks up at the screen and says, I'm paid too much. <laughs> a care worker opens a door goes down a long hallway and there's an elderly man sitting on the bed waiting for her, obviously, to take him to the bathroom. And she looks up and says, I'm paid too much. There's a policeman struggling with a thief who looks over the thief's shoulder and the policeman says, I'm paid too much. And then behind them struggling is this guy from the city wearing a pinstripe suit and a bowler hat and an umbrella walking up to his Regent Park mansion and he looks around and says, I'm not paid enough. <laughs> and the video ends. <laughs> I tell you, that intervention in social media, I think, had more to do with Corbyn securing that enormous increase in the labor vote on an explicit class message than anything else. We just heard from Professor Leo Panich, Canada Research Chair in Comparative Political Economy at York University and Emeritus Professor of Political Science at that institution. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Many labor activists in Canada typically look to the strike as an important event, planting the seeds of successful struggles throughout the next two decades that would culminate in gains such as collective bargaining, improved living and work conditions, and political parties geared around the interests of the working class. The Global Research News Hour sought more insights on the legacy of the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike from three guests. Julie Gard is Professor of Labor Studies and History at the University of Manitoba. She's authored numerous academic articles and chapters in books. She's the author of, most recently, of the 2019 book Radical Housewives, Price Wars and Food Policies in Mid-20th Century Canada. John Clark is a longtime organizer with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, a grassroots anti-poverty organization based mostly in Toronto that combines collective struggles on behalf of individuals fighting for tenant rights, welfare access, and those threatened with eviction and deportation with larger political campaigns. Harold Dick is a longtime anti-poverty and welfare advocate based in Winnipeg. He has played prominent roles with a number of Winnipeg-based anti-poverty organizations. He's also the long-serving director of the Low Income Intermediary Project, which conducts advocacy work for people on social assistance. Here is Professor Julie Gard addressing how the 1919 strike informs her understanding of modern-day social activism. As the historian of social movements and, and labor, I have to point out that Perhaps what is little known is that a decade later, in the 1930s, when you know Canada went through, like the rest of the world, the Great Depression, the 1930s was a decade of protest. Dec we have, I think we tend to think of the 1930s only in terms of the hardship that people experienced, and those hardships were real and severe. It was also a decade in which many, many, many people rose up to protest the circumstances that they were faced. They blamed the state for the circumstances that they were faced, not because they thought the state was responsible for the depression, but because the state was not providing support for ordinary people. There were ch school children went out in protest, neighbors went out. When people got evicted, people staged anti-eviction strikes and brought the goods that the bailiff was taking out of houses back into the houses. People across Canada were up in, in protest over things. 
people organized unions under the most difficult conditions, under conditions of high unemployment. The Workers' Unity League, a communist organization, was leading uh, organization drives and successfully organizing unions. I think that's a clear evidence of legacy from 1919, even though we saw that, uh, you know, the strike was crushed. That did not deter people. They still didn't think that it was useless to protest. They thought it was actually important to protest, to keep doing the things that they had done in 1919. Okay. Uh, John, would you like to uh, say anything from your vantage point in Toronto about that, uh, the importance of the 1919 general strike? Well, I mean, I, mean, I think obviously the, the strike in 1919 took place as part of, a, of, of an international upsurge that occurred post-World War I. Um, and I think it has to be assessed from, from, from that point of view. It's true, uh, it's true that the strike was in an immediate sense uh, crushed, but I, I, think it, I think it contributed to, uh, it contributed to an, ongoing, uh, an ongoing forward movement. The 20s was a very difficult period. Uh, in the 1930s, Jews uh, completely correct, there was, a, there, was an upsurge of, uh, there was an upsurge of resistance. Initially, uh, amongst people impacted by unemployment, that went over to uh, trade union struggles uh, that that produced in North America an enormous breakthrough in terms of uh, in, in terms of working class organisation and, and, and a major victory. So, that generalised movement of resistance, working class resistance that emerged in in Winnipeg in 1919, was was one of the vital building blocks. And today. I think we, we, you know, in, in a very real sense, we stand on the shoulders of that of that, uh, of that struggle, and, and that we, we need to we need to we need to rediscover, but we also need to develop that uh, that legacy in, in, in the fights that we take up today against. Uh, uh, I think it's true to say, a hundred years later, we face we face another enormous uh, an enormous attack and another situation in which there's going to be a need for for generalized movements of working class resistance the break out of limited and compartmentalized forms of struggle the strike was a defeat but as so often happens in history uh, defeats of working class and 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 movements of revolt is that future victories lie in a defeat and the lessons learned from that defeat. Now the strike's demands itself were, were basically reformist, simply the right to organize in unions, better wages, things like that. But in the state structure at that time, that was too radical even for the business classes ruling the country to handle. What I would like to raise though, and I think has been sorely missed in this 100th anniversary, is that uh, so much of what is happening is tended to lend a social democratic interpretation of the events of 1919 and has had a tendency, unfortunately, with a few except notable exceptions, but has a tendency to ignore that there was a far deeper radical history that emerged out of that strike. Including, and I'll say this quite frankly, I've had many years involvement in labor movement, including being vice president of Winnipeg Labor Council and many other things with Unifor, CAW, Manitoba Government Employees Union, uh, that they talk about how this led to the formation of the CCF in the 30s, but they don't mention about how it led to the formation of the Communist Party of Canada in 1921. And actually, with the 30 years of history I had with that party, uh, I met people that were involved both in the strike and the meeting in the barn in 1921 that formed that party. 
A lot of people don't realize growing out of the tradition of that strike, the first communist ever elected to North America to public office was William Kolesnik in 1926. And following up on that strike, there had been a long historical tradition of communist presence, both politically, economically, and culturally in Winnipeg's North End, that had continuous representation until the 1980s. Fortunately, that process fell apart. But that was very much a consequence of the strike, and there was a lot of cultural institutions. Some of the major events around these events included the Ukrainian Labour Temple that was built in 1919, it subsequently became associated with the Communist Party. You had a number of other, Point Douglas Labor Temple, the Elmwood Labor Temple. You had Jewish cultural organizations. You had organizations like the People's Co-op Dairies and People's Co-op Lunder Yards. Uh, the cultural, political, economic organizations became an integral part of the north end of Winnipeg for the next 50, 60 years that a lot of people seem to want to put on the wayside and it was very much associated with Marxist and communist politics. Yeah. Uh, and that legacy continues, whether or not that party can play a role anymore, yeah. that legacy continues that, to the present day. I, I think day. You're, you're kind of uh, alluding to like uh, my next question, which uh, relates to the uh, other forms of, of, of solidarity that are being uh, invoked in order to, that uh, beyond the unions. Julie, would you, you like to... Uh, uh, comment yourself because I know that you, of course, you've uh, you, your recent book on the, the radical housewives. I mean, that was uh, and and other organ radical organizing happening since uh, since the time since the time of the Winnipeg general strike that uh, points to other ways in which people have organized that go uh, that don't just involve the, uh, the the traditional union organizing that we're uh, accustomed to hearing about. Right. Yes. Um... As uh, Nolan Riley, I think, pointed out at our recent 1919 uh, centenary conference, the Winnipeg General Strike was a community strike. It wasn't just people in unions. There were only 96 unions in Winnipeg at the time, and 94 of them went out on strike. But most of the people who were out on strike were not unionized. Uh, and they were part of you know, what we think of as the broad left, possibly even the broad communist left, even if it's not connected to the party particularly. It's communistic with a small C. Uh, and I think that is exactly what the radical housewives that I've studied were part of. But we, we know there's an ethnic left, there's a labor left, there's a, you know all kinds of, there's the women's auxiliaries and so on. There's people on the street who have made Canada the country that it is through our history, in part because they supported things like uh, you know broad-based medical insurance and pensions for people provided by the state and free education for children and so on and so forth. We have those things in contrast to the United States, for instance, because Canada maintained a broad community left for many, many decades. That's eroded over time. And I think if we look now to see, you know, why it is there's many calls to have unions step up and have more general strikes. Personally, I think we can't do that easily because we don't have that broad left anymore. That broad left has been eroded so I think our task here is actually to recreate the conditions that enable a broad-based left. People are ready to do that. People obviously accept the notions that support the left, right? We all want sort of social medicine. We want, think Medicare should be better. We think education should be better. We think the state should intervene more to support ordinary people to make the world a better place. So the, the conditions, I think, the desire is there. We need to recreate a broad community left and in order to recreate the conditions that led to the Winnipeg General Strike. John, John Clark, I, this sounds like something that's been right up OCAP's alley, uh, you know, in terms of 
building these uh, larger uh, coalitions. Uh, do, do you want to sound off on, on where you see these bonds of solidarity establishing themselves or what, uh, you know, since 1919? Well, I, I was I was in Winnipeg last week and and had the opportunity to sit in the in the Ukrainian Labour Temple and 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 hear the and hear it put forward that that the greatest power that working class people have lies in the uh, in the strike weapon, and I mean I, I emphatically agree that the use of uh, the use of the strike is is is, is 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 an enormous and central power, but looking at Winnipeg uh, in 1919. Uh, I mean, everyone who analyzes this from a left perspective, I think, agrees that, that what was created was a kind of a, a very inclusive and a very broad working class common front that, that brought people in. It wasn't just the immediate unionized workers that went on strike. It was something it was something much more than that. And, and that's, I think, the most exciting and important thing, because look at the context here in Ontario where we're confronting a hard right Tory uh, agenda at the moment that's proceeding to attack with incredible, uh, incredible determination and viciousness, is that is that that there needs to be the use of the the use of the strike weapon, but it has to involve uh, and draw into the struggle uh, people facing oppression on in very many different ways. And obviously, I've been involved for a very long period in time in organising that part of the working class that. That, uh, that that faces poverty and unemployment, and so that kind of that kind of inclusive movement is is, is the most important thing, and that does require. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the Winnipeg general strike were to occur today would would of course violate the norms of of, of labour relations, um, and that's that's the important element of the thing is to is to break out of uh, is to break out of the notion that we can only fight in our in our little, uh, in, in our own uh, immediate, uh, in immediate areas, that we that we can use the strike weapon in a generalised way, but that also we can have a concept of the working class that goes beyond uh, employed workers and, and, and involves communities under attack uh, in, in the broadest possible sense. So that kind of radicalised, uh, generalised movement of working class resistance is, is I think, the only organised force going to be able to uh, to confront the austerity agenda a hundred years after the Winnipeg general strike. Okay, Harold? <laughs> yeah. Uh, every major event in history gives us lessons that we can learn, and there's no question there's lessons we can learn from that general strike. Uh, one thing we have to learn is that, uh, in my view anyway, we can never accomplish major social change without the engagement of the productive classes, what's formerly known as the industrial working class, primary producers in our society. But they don't have the same population proportion today as they had in 1919. So I would suggest that it's not a situation they can no longer do by themselves. We have to talk about all the marginalized people, the growing numbers, meaningless, non-productive work, the poor, the marginalized people. We also have to talk, and I think if we're setting a new agenda for the 21st century based on the lessons of 1919, we have to look at a way that we can merge the movement that would historically be called red, working class power, with depressing issues we face today as humanity as whole as the green movement. 
And if there's any task, I think, in front of the left right now, is how we merge those two movements that goes beyond what the Green Party in Canada so far established. They, uh, they seem to have, in their uh, limited electoral successes, marginalized uh, working people's demands, and I'm quite disappointed in that. And if the left doesn't make gains, we need to find ways to merge those two movements in order to build a future that is ecologically sound as well as economically sound and provides for the needs of all the people of the earth. God knows we have sufficient resources that we What are some of those resources? Uh, we've got more than enough energy we need, but how much of it is wasted on things like the military? or use, How much is wasted on useless uh, production? So much production is, is devoted to increasing corporate profits without yeah. meeting the needs of the people that we could actually produce less and, and meet more needs well, with I, the way things are, with the potential we have today. And that's the kind of thing Mark's talked about. The major labor unions have, have a lot of resources at their disposal. You've got so many people, uh, you know, your clients and, and John's, the people that John works with that have, uh, you know, they, they're, they're doing all of this, you know, direct action and, and mobilizing. There's a lot of labor there. And it, it, it seems, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that there seems to be a disconnect uh, between those. And, and, and the, I'm also seeing a lot of energies being directed towards political parties and then particularly mainstream parties, the NDP, Greens, and, and so on. So uh, may, maybe you could point out or, or elaborate on these obstacles. Yeah, to... don't, yeah, don't want to dominate, but certainly the Greens seems to be increasingly more towards being uh, one of the uh, major establishment parties now. And they're sacrificing certain principles. In the drive to become establishment, they tend to then try to drift towards the center to become a mainstream party. The task of the left is to recognize that we have to have at the top of our agenda a green program combined with a program that meets the needs of the poor and the working classes that actually produce the wealth of our society. And one thing I'll quickly point it out. Just quickly, I want to give you a chance. Is that one of the demands of the 1919 strike, even though they may not have been fully aware and up to date on the, on the issues involved, was for Canadian troops to be withdrawn from interference and repression of the Russian Revolution. Mm -hmm. And there was some start of recognition that we need to do something different. Okay. Yeah. Julie, maybe you should uh, get in here because I'm, I'm really curious about what your sense is in terms of some of the uh, underutilized resources that uh, we can uh, avail ourselves of in terms of... Uh, and, and where you see uh, some of the failures in terms of a traditional uh, organizing and, you know, in, in the interest of building this broad-based uh, movement that could you know, correct some of these issues. Right. Okay. Well, failures of organizing and underutilized resources, I think, are. We, I'd like to separate those two issues. Sure. Um, failures of organizing, for sure. We see, like, we have. Absolutely, we are happy and glad to have the unions that we have. We are all better off with unions than without. Unions um, have had very little success in dealing with issues of poverty in dealing with marginalized people. The unions of the 1930s were so much better. At, they organized the unemployed. They recognized that 
you know, that was important, that you didn't have an organized working class if you didn't organize the unemployed. Not made a difference when a third of the workforce was unemployed. But we have a very similar situation today with so many people working precariously who are not unionized and who unions are struggling to organize. Not to say that they haven't tried. And as John points out, he's quite right, labor laws do not facilitate this. Labor laws impede uh, unions' ability to organize precariously employed people. But it is very important to have real unions, to have community-based unions that actually organize all workers. We are all workers, except for whatever the 1%, all of us are workers. And you know, unions, to be effective, I think, in the current context, need to uh, become much bigger, much broader. I know they are trying, there are obstacles, some of them are legal, some of them are internal. So unions also need to reform themselves. And one of the things that certainly came up at our conference was that unions are still balking at changing the leadership structure, changing who, changing how people rise to leadership in, in union. And you know, we need they need to do that. It's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do that. It's hard to totally abandon the ways that have worked for 50, 60, 70 years. But it's obvious that they need to do that in order to stay relevant. In terms of underutilized resources, I would say, look at the waste, right? Half of all the food that we produce through the, you know, the food industry is wasted. We have food insecurity problems all over the world, including locally, not just offshore. Um, And yet, you know, we throw away food. Uh, Animals in uh, agriculture are raised and, you know, they throw away that that food. We yeah. throw away, you know, facing inequality. So you've got, you know, the CEOs of corporations making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Uh, well, ordinary people are becoming poorer and poorer. And we are, the middle class is almost a fiction today because it has eroded to the extent where it's almost meaningless to make a distinction between the working class and the middle class because uh, basically it's the only the, the top 10% who have 50% of Canada's wealth. Mm. I mean, I think the, the neoliberal decades have been very hard on trade unions and trade union members in many, many ways, but there's still an enormous power that exists there. Um, and the great difficulty, I think, at the moment is, is that, is that um, there is out there an incredible mood of anger and, and an incredible uh, discrediting of, of, of anything that's associated with the neoliberal centre whether that be liberalism or whether it be uh, right-wing social democracy. And I think people are, people are looking for, um, uh, for, for radical alternatives. Some of that is going to the, the, the populist right, but wherever a, a real serious left radical alternative is posed, I, I think it's, it, it's resonating. And uh, in, in, in part, that can be expressed in electoral politics, but electoral politics alone are certainly not going to do it. It's going to require the building of uh, the building of united movements. And the mindset of the great majority of the trade union leadership at the moment is, I don't think, I don't think remotely close to embracing the kind of radical politics and radical action that's required in that's required in this situation. So it's going to have to come very largely from 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 the base. But uh, I mean, in the context of Ontario at the moment, we face this incredible attack. And the general perspective is we're in for four bad years. Can we lessen the damage a little bit and, uh, and, uh, and, and have some better electoral outcome at the end of it? And that doesn't correspond to the wrecking operation in terms of the, the social infrastructure that the, uh, the, 
the, the Doug Ford government is involved in. The question that has to be posed is, can we actually stop that agenda? Can we actually make it possible for them to proceed? And on a broader front, I mean, we're looking at, we're looking at the possibility of a major war in the Middle East. We're looking at an ecological catastrophe. Um, we have to actually, we have to actually be posing really serious uh, anti-capitalist alternatives and movements that can fight for those alternatives. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that I think is the is, is the challenge that we face. Of course, in Winnipeg, there's they're talking about uh, removing uh, certain benefits for for people and social assistance at the same time as uh, the province was dedicating a lot of money to uh, you know. Jets whiteout parties. So. Exactly what I wanted to comment on, uh, and a little bit of context. Um, I, I certainly agree with John in terms of problems with trade union leadership that essentially, uh, basically, been co-opted to an existing, most of them into an existing neoliberal structure. Um, I've been around for a while, and on the 60th anniversary of the general strike in 1979. The Manitoba Federation of Labor, which I would observe tends to be one of the weakest in the country in terms of supporting things like anti-poverty movements, through its support between the May 1st rally, which was the actual start date to the process that led to the general strike when when, uh, metal trades workers walked out on strike and that ultimately led to the general strike. In 1979, they threw their full support between behind a May Day march, which we have every year in Winnipeg, and we had well in excess of 2,000 people attend, which is quite impressive for Winnipeg. Since then, they have not done so. I would have thought they would have done something similar on the 100th anniversary, but they completely avoided and ignored the process. We had about 300 people out, a traditional number. But one would have thought they would have thrown their full support behind that. And especially, as you mentioned, just to mention that briefly, uh, on May 1st of this year, the Pallister government imposed a cut on welfare benefits for people that are in the category of general assistance of expected to work. And this has affected about 11,000 people on welfare, where essentially their daily living or their monthly living budget was cut from 220 a month to 195 a month. And they do their double-speak bull uh, propaganda, saying this was in order to improve incentive for people to go out and get jobs. And since the mid-1980s, the EI benefits for people in that category saw a $120 increase from 175 to 195 It's like inflation doesn't exist in their world. But to me, it's an insult to working people that he would do that and have it scheduled for May 1st. And we need to learn from that. So, yeah, it comes down to, as I say, in combining forces, it's the labor movement, the producing classes, the uh, the small farmers, the poor, who are horribly impressed, students, that there's a potential for a broad coalition out there that we can build on, but we have to combine the red and the green in order to accomplish that, and that's those are the agendas of the day. So I just wanted to kind of close up the, the conversation with a, maybe a, a quick query about uh, this 100th anniversary of the Winnipeg general strike, and uh, if uh, a general strike uh, in advancement of uh, these objectives of uh, eliminating poverty and, and social injustice, are, is it possible or, or even desirable in the current day and age? So, uh, Julie? Well, um, I would say 
probably not possible right now. Um, I think we need to do as you know my colleagues here have suggested. We need to have like more mobilization among working people and 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 shift the anger that's directed toward right wing populism toward left wing populism, which is where it belongs. And once we did that, I think there is no question that general strikes influence government policy. I don't think you know. No one thinks. I hope that electoral politics are going to create a revolution, are going to change the world in any significant way. But we can change the way that policy works. We can change the way our collective money is spent, the way that our, our, our cities, our provinces and the country is governed by organizing collectively. Governments obviously respond when huge numbers of people go out on strike. Children going out on strike for climate justice has made them sit up and take notice. Now, so far, it's been lip service. But if they keep it up, I think they will force government's hand to actually take concrete action. Okay. Uh, John, do you have uh, any thoughts about that? Well, I, I mean, I, I think general strikes and those kinds of powerful sweeping movements that include uh, the, the strike weapon and massive uh, social resistance in other forms, it, it, it's absolutely necessary. But General strikes can't be wished into existence and they can't be bureaucratically ordained. They have to come out of sweeping social movements. I think Jude's completely correct. We've got, to, we've got to build that movement. But we live in a period when um, it doesn't have to be a question of a painstaking, gradual, uh, organisational task. Uh, I, I think there can, be, there can be real upsurges. There can be real social explosions. And I think, you know, we live, we live with the real possibility of that happening. Um, and, and in that situation, uh, organizational gains that might have taken years of, of work in, in, in one context can happen very, very rapidly. So, yes, I mean, let's set our goal on, on having a movement that could literally organize general strikes. Let's build it seriously and let's prepare. Okay. And Harold? Yeah, a general strike in of itself, by itself, cannot be the sole means of accomplishing the kind of social change we talk about, but it is certainly one of those key tools in order to accomplish those kinds of goals. Um, that it's a multi-front struggle around which this could be a key point in social development, but that's going to take many years of hard, painstaking ground uh, level research. How do you get change in the labor movement? You can only do it building from the bottom up, and that's not an easy task, but you can't do it from top down. Uh, how do you unite those forces, laboring forces, the working producing classes, with the poor, with women, with minority uh, groups, with the First Nations people of our country? That is a many-year task. But one of the lessons of 1919 is that you don't want it to be a bureaucratic top down, but at the same time, if you don't have a, a kind of a common leadership with a very dedicated goal and direction and uh, people united behind it, it kind of leads to the defeat would happen, uh, the defeat of what happened. Uh, uh, and, and that's a key lesson that we must always remember as we go forward. That was Julie Gard, Professor of Labour Studies and History, John Clark, organizer with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, and Harold Dick, Winnipeg-based anti-poverty advocate, speaking in the CKUW studio on Thursday, May 16th. Winnipeg listeners can check out Winnipeg General Strike Anniversary events by downloading the Mayworks calendar at mayworks.org. 
You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.